Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Phaedo, Part 6 When Socrates had done speaking, for a considerable time there was silence. He himself appeared to be meditating, as most of us were, on what had been said. Only Cebes and Simeus spoke a few words to one another, and Socrates, observing them, asked what they thought of the argument, and whether there was anything wanting. For, said he, there are many points still open to suspicion and attack, if anyone were disposed to sift the matter thoroughly. Should you be considering some other matter? I say no more. But if you are still in doubt, do not hesitate to say exactly what you think, and let us have anything better which you can suggest. And if you think that I can be of any use, allow me to help you. Simeus said, I must confess, Socrates, that doubts did arise in our minds. And each of us was urging and inciting the other to put the question which we wanted to have answered, and which neither of us liked to ask, fearing that our importunity might be troublesome under present at such a time. Socrates replied with a smile, Oh, Simeus, what are you saying? I am not very likely to persuade other men that I do not regard my present situation as a misfortune, if I cannot even persuade you that I am no worse off now than at any other time in my life. Will you not allow that I have as much of the spirit of prophecy in me as the swans? For they, when they perceive that they must die, having sung all their life long, do then sing more lustily than ever, rejoicing in the thought that they are about to go away to the God, whose ministers they are. But men, because they are themselves afraid of death, slanderously affirm of the swans that they sing a lament at the last, not considering that no bird sings when cold, or hungry, or in pain, not even the nightingale, nor the swallow, nor yet the hoopoe, which are said indeed to tune a lay of sorrow although I do not believe this to be true of them any more than of the swans. But because they are sacred to Apollo, they have the gift of prophecy, and anticipate the good things of another world. Wherefore they sing and rejoice in that day more than they ever did before. And I, too, believing myself to be the consecrated servant of the same God, and the fellow servant of the swans, and thinking that I have received from my master gifts of prophecy which are not inferior to theirs, would not go out of life less merrily than the swans. Never mind, then, if this be your only objection. But speak, and ask anything which you like, while the eleven magistrates of Athens allow. Very good, Socrates, said Simeus. Then I will tell you my difficulty, and Cebes will tell you his. I feel myself, and I dare say that you have the same feeling. How hard, or rather impossible, is the attainment of any certainty about questions such as these in the present life? And yet I should deem him a coward who did not prove what is said about them to the uttermost, or whose heart failed him before he had examined them on every side. For he should persevere until he has achieved one of two things. Either he should discover, or be taught the truth about them. Or if this be impossible, I would have him take the best and most irrefragable of human theories, and let this be the raft upon which he sails through life, not without risk, as I admit, 
if he cannot find some word of God which will more surely and safely carry him. And now, as you bid me, I will venture to question you, and then I shall not have to reproach myself hereafter with not having said at the time what I think. For when I consider the matter, either alone or with Cebes, the argument does certainly appear to me, Socrates, to be not sufficient. Socrates answered, I dare say, my friend, that you may be right, but I should like to know in what respect the argument is insufficient. In this respect, replied Simeus, suppose a person to use the same argument about harmony and the lyre. Might he not say that harmony is a thing invisible, incorporeal, perfect, divine, existing in the lyre which is harmonized, but that the lyre and the strings are matter and material, composite, earthy, and akin to mortality? And when someone breaks the lyre or cuts and rends the strings, then he who takes this view would argue, as you do, and on the same analogy, that the harmony survives and has not perished. You cannot imagine, he would say, that the lyre without the strings, and the broken strings themselves which are mortal remain, and yet that the harmony, which is of heavenly and immortal nature and kindred, has perished, perished before the mortal. The harmony must still be somewhere and the wood and strings will decay before anything can happen to that. The thought, Socrates, must have occurred to your own mind that such is our conception of the soul, and that when the body is in a manner strung and held together by the elements of hot and cold, wet and dry, then the soul is the harmony or due proportionate admixture of them. But if so, whenever the strings of the body are unduly loosened or overstrained through disease or other injury, then the soul, though most divine, like other harmonies of music or of works of art, of course perishes at once, although the material remains of the body may last for a considerable time, until they are either decayed or burnt. And if anyone maintains that the soul, being the harmony of the elements of the body, is first to perish in that which is called death, how shall we answer him? Socrates looked fixedly at us as his manner was, and said with a smile, Simeus has reason on his side. And why does not some one of you, who is better able than myself, answer him? For there is force in his attack upon me. But perhaps before we answer him, we had better also hear what Cebes has to say, that we may gain time for reflection. And when they have both spoken, we may either assent to them, if there is truth in what they say, or if not, we will maintain our position. Please to tell me then, Cebes, he said, what was the difficulty which troubled you? Cebes said, I will tell you. My feeling is that the argument is where it was, and open to the same objections which were urged before. For I am ready to admit that the existence of the soul before entering into the bodily form has been very ingeniously, and, if I may say so, quite sufficiently proven. But the existence of the soul after death is still, in my judgment, unproven. Now my objection is not the same as that of Simeus, for I am not disposed to deny that the soul is stronger and more lasting than the body, being of opinion that in all such respects the soul very far excels the body. Well then, says the argument to me, why do you remain unconvinced? 
when you see that the weaker continues in existence after the man is dead, will you not admit that the more lasting must also survive during the same period of time? Now, I will ask you to consider whether the objection, which, like Simeus, I will express in a figure, is of any weight. The analogy which I will adduce is that of an old weaver who dies, and after his death somebody says, He is not dead. He must be alive. See, there is the coat which he himself wove and wore, and which remains whole and undecayed. And then he proceeds to ask of someone who is incredulous whether a man lasts longer or the coat which is in use and wear. And when he is answered that a man lasts far longer, thinks that he has thus certainly demonstrated the survival of the man, who is the more lasting, because the less lasting remains. But that, Simeus, as I would beg you to remark, is a mistake. Anyone can see that he who talks thus is talking nonsense. For the truth is that the weaver aforesaid, having woven and worn many such coats, outlived several of them and was outlived by the last. But a man is not therefore proved to be slighter and weaker than a coat. Now the relation of the body to the soul may be expressed in a similar figure, and any one may very fairly say, in like manner, that the soul is lasting, and the body weak and short-lived in comparison. He may argue in like manner that every soul wears out many bodies, especially if a man lives many years. While he is alive, the body deliquesces and decays, and the soul always weaves another garment and repairs the waste. But of course, whenever the soul perishes, she must have on her last garment, and this will survive her. And then at length, when the soul is dead, the body will show its native weakness and quickly decompose and pass away. I would therefore rather not rely on the argument from superior strength to prove the continued existence of the soul after death. For granting even more than you affirm to be possible, and acknowledging not only that the soul existed before birth, but also that the souls of some exist, and will continue to exist after death, and will be born and die again and again, and that there is a natural strength in the soul which will hold out and be born many times. Nevertheless, we may be still inclined to think that she will weary in the labors of successive births, and may at last succumb in one of her deaths and utterly perish. And this death and dissolution of the body, which brings destruction to the soul, may be unknown to any of us, for no one of us can have had any experience of it. And if so, then I maintain that he who is confident about death has but a foolish confidence unless he is able to prove that the soul is altogether immortal and imperishable. But if he cannot prove the soul's immortality, he who is about to die will always have reason to fear that when the body is disunited, the soul also may utterly perish. All of us, as we afterwards remarked to one another, had an unpleasant feeling at hearing what they said. When we had been so firmly convinced before, now to have our faith shaken seemed to introduce a confusion and uncertainty, not only into the previous argument, but into any future one. Either we were incapable of forming a judgment, or there were no grounds of belief. Eschecrates, there I feel with you. By heaven I do, Phaedo. 
And when you were speaking, I was beginning to ask myself the same question. What argument can I ever trust again? For what could be more convincing than the argument of Socrates, which has now fallen into discredit? That the soul is a harmony is a doctrine which has always had a wonderful attraction for me, and, when mentioned, came back to me at once as my own original conviction. And now I must begin again and find another argument which will assure me that when the man is dead, the soul survives. Tell me, I implore you, how did Socrates proceed? Did he appear to share the unpleasant feeling which you mention? Or did he calmly meet the attack? And did he answer forcibly or feebly? Narrate what passed as exactly as you can. Phaedo Often, Eshecrates, I have wondered at Socrates, but never more than on that occasion. That he should be able to answer was nothing. But what astonished me was, first, the gentle and pleasant and approving manner in which he received the words of the young men, and then his quick sense of the wound which had been inflicted by the argument, and the readiness with which he healed it. He might be compared to a general rallying his defeated and broken army, urging them to accompany him and return to the field of argument. Eshecrates. What followed? Phaedo. You shall hear, for I was close to him on his right hand, seated on a sort of stool, and he on a couch, which was a good deal higher. He stroked my head and pressed the hair upon my neck. He had a way of playing with my hair. And then he said, Tomorrow, Phaedo, I suppose that these fair locks of yours will be severed. Yes, Socrates, I suppose that they will, I replied. Not so, if you will take my advice. What shall I do with them? I said. Today, he replied, and not tomorrow. If this argument dies and we cannot bring it to life again, you and I will both shave our locks, and if I were you, and the argument got away from me, and I could not hold my ground against Simeus and Cebes, I would myself take an oath, like the Argives, not to wear hair any more until I had renewed the conflict and defeated them. Yes, I said, but Heracles himself is said not to be a match for two. Summon me, then, he said, and I will be your Iolaus until the sun goes down. I summon you rather, I rejoined, not as Heracles summoning Iolaus, but as Iolaus might summon Heracles. That will do as well, he said. But first let us take care that we avoid a danger. Of what nature, I said. Lest we become misologists, he replied. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>